My name is Dan Farron. Uh, I'm serving as one of the elders at Lakeside, and uh, today I have the privilege of uh, sharing a bit from the Gospel of Matthew. So uh, this week we're going to be looking at Matthew 8, uh, Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13, where Matthew presents an interaction between Jesus and a Roman centurion. So last week, Pastor Paul provided us with the context for where we find ourselves in the book of Matthew. At this point, Jesus has descended from the Sermon Mount and, as summarized in chapter 9, 35, is going to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. This is a period in Jesus' ministry that served to affirm Jesus as the Messiah, reveal the kingdom of heaven that was coming to earth, uh, with its, sorry, and, and reveal the kingdom of heaven that was coming to earth with its king. So we're going to start by running through Matthew's account. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at, at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Jesus' interaction with, with the centurion is a great example of the summary Matthew offered in chapters 9, 35. In this text, Jesus teaches through a caution to his Jewish listeners. He preaches the good news of the kingdom through the faith of the Gentile. And finally, we see what type of Messiah he is through an act of healing. As we begin, I want to focus in on verses uh, 10 through 12, because it's in these verses that we get the best introduction to who Jesus is speaking to and why Matthew thought this interaction of importance. So it's a little bit further uh, in the scripture that we're doing, but again, I think that this really gets to why Jesus is sharing this message. So here are the verses again. Verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So first I want to focus on the observation that upon seeing the faith of the centurion, Jesus spoke to those who followed him. The words we just read were intended for those who came down the mountain and followed him into Capernaum. So they'd be likely uh, likely to be similar to the people who are listening to him on the Sermon Mount. His disciples and crowds, which we can understand as people who are intrigued or interested in Jesus. As with Jesus' disciples, these primarily would have been Jews who were present. So to his fellow countrymen, uh, the descendants of Abraham, he provides these words of caution. Jesus is saying, take note of this centurion's faith. Many like him will be welcomed into the family of faith, while those who ought to be at the family supper will be excluded. Jesus uses his interaction with, uh, with the centurion as an opportunity to warn his listeners about a spiritual reality, that faith is the true mark of heirs of the kingdom. 
He does this by holding up the faith of the centurion as an example that surpasses that of the sons of the kingdom. Now, this message would have shocked Jesus' Jewish listeners, as most of the first century Jews saw their culture and religion as strongly linked. One of the clearest ways to see this reality in the first century Israel was actually in a division, so the division between Jew and Samaritan. The historical root of that separation uh, between these groups goes back to the division of the, uh, of the kingdom of Israel into the northern and southern kingdoms. Um, but the division continued to be pronounced after the conquest of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians. And when the land was resettled by Israel, many, uh, many of the individuals who resettled married foreigners uh, and adopted foreign practices, um, shifting kind of the, the focus of worship or how they worship God. And so Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman, as written by John, documents these differences a bit further. So John, in chapters 4, verse 9, says, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a, Samar a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The mixing of Jewish culture with others always presented the risk of external forces leading Jews away from God. To the Jews, the Samaritans were not the true race or lineage of, of Israel. And to the Jewish people, they were an example of how failing to maintain the Jewish cultural traditions resulted in failure to practice, practice the Jewish faith and a descent into unrighteousness. So what this division highlights is the cultural understanding that lineage and descent from the Jewish patriarchs was an important part of righteousness or right relationship with God. So Jesus' followers would have been shocked by Jesus' statement that the sons of the kingdom will be left in the dark, will not be invited to the family supper. So this... <clears throat> This would have surprised them given the promises of God and the privilege of their ancestry, uh, which were so clearly displayed. Uh, in Romans 9, 4 and 5, Paul succinctly summarizes the privileges that the Jews held. Uh, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed and forever. Yet later in Romans 9, 30 to 33, we see the barrier that is keeping Israel from entering the kingdom. <clears throat> uh, Romans 9, 30 says, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law, that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if they, as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Jesus, seeing that his people have built for themselves a false sense of righteousness based, <clears throat> based upon the law and their lineage seeks to shake the weak foundations that his countrymen have put their hope in. Like John the Baptist before him, uh, he cautions, uh, or like John the Baptist before him, who cautioned uh, the Jews by saying, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Jesus challenges his listeners to not, uh, to not trust their genealogy for righteousness, but to look to God in the same manner as the centurion. So as I've been working on the sermon and reflecting on who Jesus' message was 
uh, was for, thought a lot about where I'm reflected in this passage. Um, my hope and faith are in Christ. And I believe that uh, it's his righteousness, not mine, that is of any value. However, I know that my heart, like that of many of the Jews, is prone to returning to old things. I put my trust in uh, things that I used to put my trust in or um, <clears throat> um, continue to go back to things that I put my trust in. So like the sons of the kingdom, I risk becoming complacent and trusting in my action of following Jesus rather than trusting in his action for my righteousness. So writing the sermon alone has been a really good reminder of that for me. Um, continually, I've been reminded of my need to turn to God uh, and trust him for the words for this message, um, not to trust in uh, my own hard work or um, just like continue to like put put the effort in because uh, ultimately, like as much as my hard work goes, I just end up spinning spinning my wheels and um, not getting anywhere. The the key and like the big reminder for me, even in writing uh, about this topic, has been like I need to trust in God because He is the author of of my faith. He's the one who uh, who I need to turn to when when, when I'm bankrupt. <clears throat> so Jesus' message to his Jewish followers is an important message for the church today. Uh, just as it is a message for me, it's a message for us, that we have lots of potential in the church to shift our focus from the foundation of faith in Jesus to a trust in actions that spring out of that faith. This is such a reality, uh, such a reality that in Galatians 1.6, Paul challenges the Galatian church not to move on from the good news by putting their trust in religious practices and righteousness based on the law. If Jesus warned his Jewish listeners and Paul, the early church, uh, and Paul warned the early church about the dangers of putting our hopes in something other than the gospel, then we should definitely ask ourselves whether we're putting our hopes in another gospel. Are we trusting in the action of our faith rather than the object of our faith? And what might the modern equivalence um, be of what Jesus was addressing uh, to his peers uh, in Matthew 8? Do I or do, do we trust uh, in the church uh, or our church attendance uh, for our righteousness? Um, do I, uh, do, do you trust in your baptism or a past profession of faith as your salvation? The difficulties that we face uh, with COVID-19 and uh, and the way it's forcing us to adjust how we practice our faith are a great opportunity for us to assess any ways we have allowed religious practice to take the place of faith in Jesus. Do we still stand firm uh, on a firm foundation when our traditional practices of church and faith are changed? When we can't go and gather at church, when we don't have that Sunday gathering, how is that changing or shaping your faith? And is it? What's Jesus' answer to these questions? Look at this centurion. So now that we have a clear understanding of who the recipients of this message were and its relevance for us today, we need to look back to the start of the passage, to the faith of the centurion, and ask, what is the faith that Jesus recommends or points us towards? So turning back to verse 5, uh, Matthew 8, verse 5, says, When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly, and he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. 
When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. So let's begin with a bit of context. Uh, the Roman centurion was the first century success story. Centurions were the most, com uh, were the most common ranking officers throughout the Roman army. Uh, the Roman army, which was organized into legions of 6,000 soldiers, was subdivided into groups of 100, which were commanded by the centurions. What's interesting about them is that individuals holding this position attained it by being promoted through the ranks and would be honored as one of the highest positions available to the average working citizens of Rome. As a free Roman citizen, they would have a variety of other rights not conferred to, uh, to others within the empire, including the right to vote, and the right to own land. So we see the centurion in question held a position of honor and rank amidst the other benefits bestowed to, a, bestowed to a free Roman citizen. The centurion that Matthew presents for us, however, is not that of a triumphant soldier who's climbed the ranks to a place of authority, but of a desperate, desperate man <clears throat> trying to find relief for a valued and loved servant. This distinction is important to note, as we, as we seek to understand the centurion's faith, the Roman centurion, a self-made man with privilege and authority, seeks out Jesus because he has a problem his power cannot solve. At home, a valued servant is lying unable to move, paralyzed by illness. And while this isn't stated by Matthew, I think it's reasonable for us to assume that the centurion has done everything within his power to heal his servant. He would have started with his household, seeking whatever help the other servants could offer. He would have sought the help of physicians, possibly uh, one attached to the military uh, that he commanded, uh, or others who were local physicians in Capernaum and, Gal in, and in Galilee. Amidst his options, he would have had the pantheon of Greek and Roman gods to whom he might call. In order to seek the assistance of these gods, the centurion would have to offer prayers and vows to God known to perform healing. He could make sacrifices to enlist the aid of a deity. And finally, he could make a journey to a temple dedicated to worship of a god, offering healing and there entreating the god through prayer, offering and sacrifice to heal his servant. The centurion's servant highlights his bankrupt state. Despite his position of status, authority, and prosperity, he is incapable of solving the problem on his own. His desire was for the healing of his servant, what a loved servant this must have been for him to take that extraordinary step. I don't want to read into the text beyond what's there, but whether or not he sought, to help, uh, sought the help of physicians available to him and whether or not he entreated um, the Greek and Roman gods to aid his servant, we know that there are problems phys physicians can't solve. And this is all the more true as we think of the tools and knowledge at the disposal of first century physicians uh, compared to that which we have today. In this scenario, the centurion is confronted with the fact that no matter what rank he ascends to in the Roman army, no matter how much wealth he accumulates, and no matter what earthly help is available to him, there are some problems he is bankrupt to resolve. In turning to Jesus, the reality of the centurion's bankrupt state would have been emphasized all the more by the cultural divisions between them. In other words, the centurion's resume is blank before Jesus. As a Gentile, he would be separated from Jesus, uh, who is a Jew, by his uncleanness. As a centurion in the Roman army, he was a leader of the occupying army, the army uh, that had taken over and invaded uh, the, the land of Israel, the promised land. Uh, so he is an enemy of the Jewish nation. 
And there's nothing in the centurion's position, status, or culture that should rec recommend him to Jesus. And this is important for us to take note of. Even though he had nothing to offer, the centurion put his trust in Jesus. He had faith. So Matthew is trying to convey an important message to us in the identity of the centurion. Faith comes out of our poverty. Faith comes out of our bankruptcy, not out of our ability. So Matthew 5.3, we, uh, we just read, <clears throat> uh, or sorry, read a few weeks ago. Blessed are the poor in spirit, because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. In other words, the kingdom of God is for those who are destitute and have nothing to offer. It's for those who recognize their need. And this is a message central to, uh, central to Jesus' message on the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> this was a message that was central to Jesus uh, throughout the Gospels. In faith, the centurion has turned to the right person. So this man of whom Jesus says, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I sound, found such faith. <clears throat> How? Out of his bankrupt state, does the centurion express this faith? And three examples stand out to me. The first way the centurion demonstrates his faith is in seeking out Jesus. The centurion, by whatever means he has heard about Jesus, has come to put his trust in him. It's worth noting, again, that the act of seeking Jesus' help had some big hurdles, um, such as the en enmity um, between, uh, the, or the, the enmity that often existed between Jews and Romans, and that existed on many fronts, whether it's cultural, spiritual, political, uh, you name it. There were issues that, of tension that stood between these two figures. Amidst the barriers, the centurion's faith in Jesus was active. He actively sought out the help that he desperately needed. And he found Jesus and appealed to him for help. Jesus himself speaks to the topic of seeking as an application of our faith. He says in Luke 11, 9-10, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Bankruptcy, like the centurion, should prompt us to seek our God and his kingdom. To put our trust in God, for there our trust will not be disappointed. The next way we see the centurion put his faith in Jesus is to trust in his ability. The centurion doesn't approach Jesus and say, I trust that if you come, my servant, uh, come and see my servant, prescribe some medication, and if he keeps up with his re rehab, that he'll be healed. The centurion states, say the word, and my servant will be healed. This is an incredible statement of trust. Say the word, and my paralyzed servant, whom you've not seen or touched, will walk without pain. The centurion's trust in Jesus' ability is huge. And when I think of seeking help from others, uh, what my approach does not mirror this when I, when I find or when I seek help in others. Uh, more often than not, I seek, seek help with apprehension uh, or have a tendency to think they'll do what they can. So the centurion doesn't just trust Jesus tentatively. He casts his hope wholeheartedly upon Jesus' ability to heal others and that his ability will be complete with all but a word. The last observation I want to make about how the centurion demonstrated his faith is that he showed trust and understanding of Jesus' authority. He shares that he's a man that is acquainted with authority. As a leader within the Roman army, he is used to giving direction and orders to the soldiers and servants under his command. In the same way, 
that he trusts his command his commands to be acted on he trusts that jesus need only say the words and his authority will see his servant healed this is where i wish i had a little more information uh, because at a minimum this shows that the centurion trusts jesus uh, to have authority over sickness and physical health and i think that jesus effort to highlight centurion's faith uh, or in that effort to highlight his faith it's likely that that trust goes far beyond this uh, that there's an implication that um, his trust is in Jesus for salvation because Jesus recommend or points to him as, as one from the East and West who will recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But regardless of how far the faith extends, the centurion affirms that he trusts Jesus as one with authority to command the health of his servant. <clears throat> so as I've thought of a manner in which the centurion displayed his trust, uh, it makes a lot of sense to me when I apply to another scenario. Um, for instance, like if I was still in school and somehow I could not complete a school assignment, um, which is relevant for me in that I still have nightmares about this, like waking up in the middle or like having dreams where I'm sitting in class and a teacher all of a sudden says, hey, it's time to hand this in. and I have either no recollection of the assignment or all of a sudden I realize that I've totally put it off. So, um, so this, this one gets to me still. Uh, the recourse for me in that scenario would be to seek out someone I thought I could trust and appeal to them for help. So this is what the centurion models in, uh, in, uh, in seeking out Jesus. Like he seeks somebody who he, uh, who he trusts can help him and he appeals to him. Uh, and then after seeking somebody out, uh, we see that there's an effort to find uh, and look for somebody who has both the ability to help and also the authority to help. So when I go to a friend for help in this scenario where, where I've got an assignment due and I, and I don't have it done. No, I wouldn't go to a friend because they have neither the ability to affect change nor the authority to affect change. Um, would I go to, uh, or would I place my trust in a math teacher um, to, to help me with my English assignment or get me an extension on my English assignment? No, because my math teacher doesn't have the authority um, to give me an extension over an assignment that I have in my English class. So we seek the help of those we trust will give it. We seek the help of those who we trust have the ability to help, and we also uh, we also seek the help of those who we trust have the authority to help. And on these three points, the centurion displays his faith in Jesus that Jesus uh, that Jesus can help him, that Jesus has the ability to and the authority to. So through the centurion's faith, we see Jesus affirmed as the King, the Messiah, the hope of Israel, and the hope of the nations. Jesus reveals that he has the ability and the authority to command the healing of the sick and the wounded. Jesus shows that he is a merciful and great that he is merciful and gracious, that he cares for the downcast and the poor. <clears throat> and Jesus reveals that it is only by his power that anyone can enter the kingdom of heaven. It is by faith in God that we are counted righteous and considered citizens. Matthew's account of the centurion serves to affirm Christ as the coming king and show us what his kingdom looks like. It also is an important message for us to hear. Jesus spoke his teaching to those who followed him down from the Sermon Mount. 
Around him would have been his closest and uh, closest and committed disciples. All uh, and from that closest and committed bunch, uh, you would have seen the total opposite end of the spectrum. From those who were moderately intrigued to those who actually, um, like some of the Pharisees display, uh, had animosity towards Jesus. There would have been those who recognized their poverty and bankruptcy before God, and there would have been those who believed in their own righteousness. And in the same way, those who heard this message from Jesus represent those who hear it today. People who are physically, emotionally, spiritually bankrupt, those who are placing their trust in their accomplishments and actions for their righteousness. So Matthew's message is just as important for us today. And for us, it's worth noting that the central point that Jesus is making is that it is by faith that the centurion is a true son of Israel and citizen of the kingdom of heaven. It is by faith that the centurion will be welcomed to heavenly dinner feast with the patriarchs. It is by faith that the centurion enters Abraham's lineage. In Romans 4, 13-17, Paul says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through righteousness of faith. For if, <clears throat> if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the, for the law brings wrath, but where there's no law, there's no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on the grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the adherent of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I've made you the father of many nations. Paul highlights that Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, was not justified by his actions, but by his faith. The father of the Jewish people, from whom, from whom the Jews drew their lineage, was not righteous because of works, but he was righteous because of faith in God. And this uh, this is what recommended him to God. However, in great error, the, Jew, the Jews mistook the point and believed that righteousness was to come through the law. Uh, this is what they depended on. In verse 16, Paul highlights that from that point after, every person who puts their faith in God becomes a child of Abraham. There's one key message for all who hear Jesus' words. Trust in Jesus for your righteousness, and you will be a citizen of his kingdom. In the words of Romans 10, 8 to 13, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. No matter who you are, whether a centurion or a disciple, a Gentile or a Jew, or today, whether you followed Jesus from a young age, uh, whether you followed Jesus for years, or are just hearing about him now, the application remains the same. Put your faith in Jesus for your righteousness. If you've been following Jesus for years, heed his warning. Be careful that you don't substitute anything for the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus. Be careful that you don't substitute anything for the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus. It's far too easy for us to look to the acts of obedience 
that result from our faith as a measure of our righteousness. We forget that we worship, we gather with believers, we read scripture as a response to Jesus' work on our behalf. It's far too easy for us to see our worship, our gatherings, our reading, our pursuit of God as a measure of righteousness. So for those who are already following Jesus, continue to walk in faith the same way you started, out of a clear knowledge of your own bankruptcy. Continue to call on the name of the Lord and let your actions be a response to uh, to his gift of righteousness. If you're new to following Jesus or have never put your trust in him, know that Matthew's message is one of hope, that we do not have to do the heavy lifting of righteousness on our own. We do not earn our place in God's kingdom by hard work. Know that like the centurion, God does not turn away those who approach him empty-handed. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So let's pray. God, thank you that uh, you you love us so much. uh, And you're such an incredible God that you're willing to allow us to come to you empty-handed. Uh, what incredible news it is uh, for, for us that uh, we don't need to toil under the burden of the law and righteousness um, to, to be in communion with you. And that, uh, that when we recognize and see just how little we have to our name, um, that there's nothing we have to recommend us to you, that you still accept us, God. And pray for, um, yeah, I pray for us as a church that uh, right now as we are in a time that is really shaking up uh, all of our, our traditions and practices, whether as a, as a church, uh, as families, as individuals, um, that this would be a, a really good opportunity for us to assess our hearts and uh, the things that we have put our trust in. Um, Father, I pray that through this, you'd be helping us to put our trust in you, uh, to see you as the author of our righteousness, uh, to know that if we call on you, you are faithful uh, to provide, uh, that um, your desire is for us, <clears throat> your desire is for us to seek you for righteousness, that, that you would be glorified in that. Uh, Father, so we pray these things in the name of your Son. Amen. <clears throat>